Today we've got the second episode of season three for you, a conversation with Rochelle Tormino, the founding editor-in-chief of Peach Mag and current MFA student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. This episode was requested by Erica Walsh. Before we get to it, I also wanted to remind folks of some important deadlines coming up this week. Most low-residency programs accept students twice a year, and many of them have a deadline of September 1st for those wanting to start in the winter-slash-spring semester. So good luck to anyone applying. We just tweeted out some of those programs and deadlines. Our handle is at MFAWritersPod if you want to go check those out. Besides Twitter, you can also find MFA Writers on Instagram and at MFAWriters.com. We love to hear from listeners, so feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms or an email at MFAWritersPodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Also, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can apply at MFAWriters.com. Soon on our website, you'll also find ways to support us financially, if it's within your means. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today, I'm with Rochelle Tormino. Rochelle is a poet, editor, and educator from Niagara Falls, New York. She's the author of the poetry collection That X and the chapbooks Come Back, Feel Royal and Personal and Generic. Her poems and essays have appeared or are forthcoming in the American Poetry Review, Bennington Review, Electric Literature, Literary Hub, Pretty Cool Poetry Thing, Metatron Press, Shabby Doll House, Salt Hill Journal, and elsewhere. She is also the founding editor-in-chief of Peach Mag and an editorial advisor to Foundlings Press. She lives between Buffalo and Western Massachusetts, where she is an MFA candidate in poetry at UMass Amherst. Today, she's brought a poem to read for us titled Flowers, Poems, Flower Poems. A woman I've never met sends me tulips from two states over. There are things women know to do. They sit on my desk next to the window. I love flowers because they're ordinary on one side of the glass and a gift on the other. I keep them alive to remember I can. There are things women know how to do. Clipped and caged, and I think that's beautiful. What could be more feminine than dying a slow death and another creature calling it beautiful? A hymn for every howl. It's crazy when you think about it. Whatever you call it, it's the one thing that brings me back into myself. Dancing naked in the mirror, making faces in the glass. I only ever wanted to make you feel my feeling. You want to make me mad so you can call me mad? Well, I am mad. You knew who I was when you spun me like a prom queen and I kept my eyes open. I showed you my rotten nature. A woman can spend her whole life spinning, arranging flowers, and I intend to. 
Not now, but I've decided to die. Like a tulip in March, on the dusk of a stranger, an opening. Sweet enough for you now? Still opening. Rochelle, that was awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for reading. Thanks for being here. <laughs> Hell yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. All right. So before we talk about anything else, I think we have to talk about the fact that the poem you just read was recently featured on the <laughs> Slowdown, a podcast yes. in which Ada Limon, the next poet laureate of the United States, reads your poem. I know. That was sick and surreal, and I'm still processing it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. One of my good friends, Dennis and Ty Schultz, had their poem, Today I'm Not Thinking About Gender, featured on there recently. And we, like, in our program, collectively lost our shit when we listened to it. So <laughs> so tell me, like, like when you found out, like, tell me about getting that email. Did you get an email from, like, the producer or from Ada Limon or what happened? Yeah, it was literally just an email. And I don't know, I freaked out. I sent a screenshot to my group chat. Um, <laughs> I like, you know, did the neurotic thing and checked the email address and then copied yeah. and pasted it into Google, making sure it's real. You know? <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was real. And um, it happened. And I just I, I still feel really blessed about it. Um, I have been listening to that podcast for years. And um Ada Limon's poetry has meant a lot to me and to have that sort of um, attention from her momentarily was just a really kind of, yeah, amazing experience. Yeah, it must have been really affirming. I mean, like you've been kind of in or around the publishing industry for a while now. You know, you've you founding editor in chief of Peach Mag. So you've been publishing other people's work. You've been sending your work out. You've been getting published over the years. But I'm sure you know as well as anyone just how tough it is to like break in and like get noticed. And so to have like that kind of recognition, I imagine, you know, and looking back on where you came from has got to be pretty sweet. Yeah. I mean, I feel like so many of my readers and sort of experience in this publishing world has been my friends or my immediate community. And I like that. And so to sort of have attention on my poems from like a, a, a poet who I, you know, never would have thought knew who I was um, or would read a poem. And I guess I have to give a shout out to the American Poetry Review and the editors there for um, taking a chance on that poem, because without them, it I'm sure it wouldn't have gotten in front of Ada and the producers of the podcast. So um, I don't know, it's it's still pretty surreal. It's, it's, it's weird anytime someone you don't know likes your work. It, it you know, it's, uh, a blessing. I don't know. Well, even before you joined the MFA program, you know, you had some success in publishing. And like I said, you were the founding editor-in-chief of Peach Mag. So tell us a little bit about what you were doing in the years before pursuing the MFA and what made you want to pursue it. Yeah, totally. Um, I was living in Buffalo, New York. I was running Peach Mag with friends and doing readings and hosting readings and publishing and publishing other people. And um, I did that for a, a few years and sort of got to a point with my own work. Like I felt like I was hitting a wall. It, it, it really started happening um, when I was doing the edits on my first book, That X. Um, I just sort of felt like like I'd taken my work as far as I could alone or not alone, but in my free time, um, outside of, you know, my job. 
and I wanted to learn more. I wanted that education. Um, I sort of envied people who had that education and I was always, you know, trying to surround myself with them. And that's part of Peach Mag, I think for me, was trying to find a way to surround myself with other writers and learn from them and engage with their work and how they thought about their work. And so it kind of happened organically from there, just knowing that like the poems needed something else, but not being sure what that else was, feeling like I was repeating myself or like I knew my tricks already, or like I knew how to get out of poems or um, I was just ready to be exposed to new kinds of poetry and ways of thinking about poetry and had, you know, the luck to get into an MFA and have been doing that ever since, I guess. Okay. Well, I, you mentioned to me before the interview that you spent some time teaching ESL in Spain. And I, I mm. have to talk about this with you because yeah, uh, totally. the years you were there, 2013 and 2016, I was also in Spain from 2014 to 2016 teaching oh, wait, English. What part? Yeah, what I was part? in I was in the Balearic Islands in Menorca the first year and then Mallorca the second year. Where were you? Wow, that is crazy. Um, I was in Madrid for the first two years and then Granada for the third. But I visited Mallorca. I loved it. That's um, awesome. That's great. Did you go to Soyer? Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. Did you take yeah. that wooden train? Through yeah, like the lemon the and orange groves. Like, oh my yeah. God. <laughs> like, I know. What a world. Why did we leave? <laughs> I have no idea. Sometimes, you know, like I'm trudging along in mid-Missouri and I'm like, was that even real? That yeah. those two years <laughs> I spent on like a Mediterranean paradise. And what was I thinking when I, I left? Oh my God. I know. Well, I wonder <laughs> if we left for the same sorts of reasons. I'd be curious to hear why you left. Well, you know, uh, I had already been traveling for like six years at that point. And so I was like kind of ready to like start thinking about what I was going to do next. I knew I wanted to come back to the States. And so and I also had a bunch of student loan debt. So then it was like, oh, I think I'll, what we ended up doing, my partner and I, we decided to go to South Korea and teach there for a couple of years and save a bunch of money and, you know, pay off all my student loans. And then I... Uh, applied to the MF- MFA programs and got in and came back. Wow, that's amazing. So I'm like, oh man, Rochelle, Rochelle and I were like probably moving in the same spaces. It's so funny. Yeah, I wonder, did you did you do it through the Spanish government? Yeah. The, yeah. yeah. Wow, I wonder if we were like at orientation together. I <laughs> didn't know. even it's know. Funny, right? That's hilarious. Wow. You started writing poetry while you were there, right? Yeah, yeah. So what was that like? What, what was What was it about Spain, do you think, that like motivated you to start writing poetry? You know, I, I, I think part of it is, um, like when I first got to Spain in the fall of 2013, a a year after I graduated undergrad, um, I was not good at Spanish at all. And the, the, the steep learning curve and, um, hyper awareness of language suddenly, something that I'd always just sort of relied on to not even communicate, but just express yourself, you know, express your personality, make jokes, um, was suddenly constrained and restricted. And I, it gave me a new angle into thinking about language for the first time. I'd, you know, written a lot of creative nonfiction prior to that, but um, never really thought about it at like the word by word, syntactical, idiomatic level, I guess, like, I don't know, learning a, learning a second language just sort of um, opened my brain to <laughs> the sort of wonderful things 
that words in certain orders can do. Um, that felt closer, I guess, to the way that I think about poetry now. And I think too, like teaching ESL and having my own language refracted back to me was a really beautiful experience. It, I, I felt so creative and imaginative constantly just in that sort of immersive environment of being in what felt like a sandbox with language where like I had a certain amount of skills and tools with Spanish and my students had a certain amount of skills and tools with English and then just trying our best to figure out how to communicate with each other. And also, you know, I was teaching middle and high school and so they are funny and, you know, learning how people express their personalities and try to make other people laugh or feel things with language was something that I just got to spend some time hyper-focused on that um, I just maybe never considered or taken for granted. Yeah, totally. I had a very similar experience when I started teaching ESL where like, I think it's normal for language to just be like, to just completely take, like take for granted your own language, this thing that's just been there for you forever yeah. that you, you know, just kind of learned before you were even forming memories. Right. And then to have it, like you said, refracted back to you to be like breaking down your own language and being like, Oh, why do we use words in this way? What is the point of this order? Like, what are the grammatical rules that like I've never had to learn? And then to like take that knowledge and apply it to learning a second language. Cause I also yeah. studied Spanish while I was traveling was super helpful for learning a second language. <laughs> yeah, totally. Also, also just like, like you said, kind of r like reawakens you to like what language is and like what the possibilities are with language. Mm -hmm. I could see how for poetry that could be really useful. I think back on that time and just felt so present with, I mean, it sounds so corny, but just like words for the, like I was getting like really, into etymology and myth, like trying to figure out where certain expressions and words came from and how they evolved and what that meant about history. And, you know, as a 20, what was I, 22, 23, that, that was just, a, it was a new concept to me at the time. And I was really um, kind of steeped in it. And that was, it was just beautiful. I don't know. Yeah. Having spent that time traveling and like also working for quite a while between undergrad and graduate school, and like working on your craft on your own, what has it meant to you to have this dedicated time and literary community at your disposal while in the MFA program? I don't take it for granted at all, I guess. Um, I see my partner wake up at six in the morning every day to get in a couple hours of writing before he has to go to work. I used to have to do that. I used to have to write on my lunch break or, you know, sacrifice my social life on the weekends for writing or reading and was happy to do it because that's what I was interested in. But now it's like to, to, have, to have had to learn how to fit it into your life for so long. And then suddenly it's all you do. It's so, I don't know, unreal, I guess. It, it, it reminds me a lot, actually speaking of like the Spain experience, this like immersion of being completely steeped in an art form like poetry and being surrounded by other people who are also steeped in it also at a certain point in their education and to be able to you know turn to any one person in my social group here and talk to them about poetry and hear what they think and learn from them um 
the sheer volume that I'm reading right now, I could have never read at before the poets and movements and the education is just, um, it's been everything. It's been a real blessing. Um, yeah, I, I don't take it for granted. Don't want to go back. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's, let's take a dark turn with this. (laughs) (laughs) Don't make me graduate. (laughs) Well, you, you mentioned to me that you spent the first part of your writing life. So like high school, undergrad, and your early twenties, more interested in creative nonfiction. And we talked about Ada Limon earlier when she was announced as the new poet laureate. I read in the New York times that she originally wrote fiction thinking that would be the best path to publishing. And after long days imagining the lives of other people, she would write a bit of poetry because there she felt like she could be herself. And that's what she ended up publishing, which I thought was pretty cool. Obviously with nonfiction, you were already writing about yourself, but what was it about poetry that eventually drew you in that direction? Like what did it provide that the essay couldn't? Yeah. Well, my earliest sort of like ventures into writing, like, as you say, like it was definitely like more of a creative nonfiction thing. I'd always kept a diary, you know, I came of age during the um, advent of the internet and live journal and um, expressing yourself through text, like instant messages and text messages and, felt like I was always trying to articulate my experience to, I guess, in that period of time of high school, my friends, but also myself. But at the same time, I was like going home and, you know, it'd be like 3.30 p.m. after school and just spending like four hours just scouring the internet for new emo lyrics that I loved, (laughs) you know? That was like a, a, a hobby of mine, then just pasting them into my live journal or buddy profiles and you know, I wasn't really interested in the poetry that we were learning in school, but in retrospect, I, I think I was interested in just the emotion of poetry, the focus on like a intimate, like charged, just expressive utterance. Um, God, that sounds corny, but I mean it. Like I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I've always had like a lot of emotions and feelings and just not, I feel like prose, um, I sort of get bored with myself before I've even got anything out. Whereas the the way you can condense a whole sort of world and point of view and experience into a poem, the freedom of that um, feels more suited to maybe it's my attention span. Maybe it's, um, I don't know, the way that I think I feel through the world pretty deeply and in bursts. Yeah. So, I mean, they go hand in hand, you know, I, I still re- like to write, lyrical nonfiction. And I rely heavily on my poetry background to make emotional moments feel more charged when they need to be. But I definitely feel like I can't help but be a poet, whereas prose is something I have to carve out time for. Mm. I imagine the process is really different too. I mean, you talk about um, how you can distill a feeling down to like a really small moment in a poem. How is your process different from like when you were writing nonfiction to writing poetry and even from when you first started writing poetry to now is it like coming in bursts like you've got this idea and like a draft pops out and then you work on it or is it more fluid than that yeah that's a great question um I very rarely experience the like full first draft in one sitting type of a thing my my brain doesn't really work that way like I'm just like too much like editing myself as I go and I guess like I think of my process more in terms of collage. Um, I 
have like a, you know, small little black journal and I've got a whole series of them at this point, um, that I carry with me. And then I have a notes app on my phone, um, for when it's, you know, kind of corny to take out a leather moleskin. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but yeah, like I will write lines or phrases or images or words down as I just sort of meander my day to day. And eventually when I feel like a sort of like maybe underlying emotion, um, I guess I'm, I'm getting to the point where I'm able to recognize when I feel like I'm on the verge of a poem feeling wise, like I, like I need to sit down and work something out and tinker. Um, and usually it's like a, a phrase that I'm interested in repeating or an image or two images that I want to connect. And I will draw on the lines and images and phrases that I've written down either in that journal or in my notes app to help me get from point A to B. Not that I know even what those points are yet, um, but it's it's really like a a dumping of things that I've thought were interesting and then a taking away. And I sometimes use like formal techniques to help me get out a draft, um, whether it's you know a, like an actual form like a sonnet um, or a duplex, or um, whether it's like a constraint like a certain amount of syllables in a line or a certain amount of words that can only be one syllable, something like that. Like some kind of just like rule I invent for myself to help me kind of finish something. And then we'll, you know, take away and add it down and condense even further once I've got that out. This summer you began teaching an eight week workshop with catapult called poetry as play. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about that course and what you mean by the poetics of play. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still working on, articulating it myself, I guess. Um, but it's partly, I think, a general sort of attitude toward what can be material, what counts as material, a sort of general attitude of playfulness and maybe like um, rebelliousness toward what can belong in a poem, whether it's an image or um, a source text or what you want to do with it. Part of it, I guess, then is also process, um, you know, a sense of wanting to fuck with something, you know, (laughs) or um, create rules for yourself and then break those rules or respond playfully to another poet. Um, And I guess then, too, part of it is um, like an emphasis maybe on who the poet speaker is like playing with um, this sort of awareness of a reader um, awareness of the way the reader feels in the experience of your poem. Um, You know, I I, thinking back to live journal and, you know, the audience being friends and back to my earliest experiences of poetry and my readers and people being friends. um, I do often, um, always, I guess, um, imagine my ideal reader as a friend. And whenever I feel like I'm getting too far away from my voice or too maybe like preoccupied by an idea or a concept, I imagine like what a friend would say or how I would say it to a friend. And that always brings me back to this sort of more like playful attitude in my poems, wanting to 
make people both laugh and feel, you know, it doesn't have to mean unserious, but I do think it has to do with, you know, we are entering a play space together when we're engaging in poems. Um, and what you can do in that play space is so freeing and fun. There are no rules. You get, you have all of the control as the poet and you get to make people feel things, which is a crazy thing, a crazy phenomenon. <laughs> and I don't know, I'm, I'm still working on articulating exactly what I think is a poetics of play, but I do think a lot of it comes down to maybe like a sense of like a lack of pretension, maybe um, of meeting the re- the reader as an equal and equal as in like someone who's like in the same stage of their life as you and what they would be interested in. Um, but also a sense of engaging in things like lineage playfully of source text playfully. Um, and the focus being on, um, I guess like a, an experience that transcends like the ordinary experience, um, in which, like, you know, that feeling when you're playing a game that you get into with other people, you're suddenly like a different version of yourself, like, and you're very present. I do think when we, when I at least engage in poetry, I am going into a similar kind of headspace of sort of abandoning ordinary life momentarily and, um, trying to figure out how to bring that not only to my poems, but to the ways in which I engage with readers and fellow poets. And um, all of that is everything from my poems to Peach Mag to teaching. Um, It's just the way that I want to move through the world. Yeah. I was also thinking about play in relation to like the writing process and how like that's something I'm trying to like bring back to my writing process. I feel like during the MFA program, I got away from that a little bit where I, you know, like because of the deadlines and, you know, like the fact that I had to turn something in that like all of my peers were going to read, you know, I I put all this pressure on myself to be very serious with my writing time and very like productive, you know, a lot of that word kept keeps showing up productive, but you know, like how we define that is interesting. Right. And how we define writing time, right. You know, like what, is writing time? What counts as writing time? If I sit down and decide to just play around with a sentence for a while, is that, does that count? You know, it should, right? You know, I find that like some of my best work comes from just like sitting down and playing around with a voice or like an idea for a while and not worrying about whether it's actually going to turn into something. But sometimes in the MFA program, I felt like, well, if I'm writing, like I have, it has to work. It has to turn into this thing that I have to turn in and everyone's going to read it. Right. And I'm trying to get back to like giving myself permission to just kind of have fun with the writing process and let it happen more organically. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that, um, you know, while I'm so grateful to have this MFA experience, I I know what you mean, where there's suddenly this pressure uh, that you put on yourself. Um, There's suddenly like the week to week deadline. Um, Poetry becomes work suddenly. Um, It exists in a space where people are judging it and depending on your attitude toward that, um, I think it can be uncomfortable and it can shut you down. Um, and it can prevent you from doing with poems, what you really want to do with poems. And so I'm inspired by the communities of poets and poetry lovers that exist outside of the academy and institutions and the way that they 
engage with one another. Um, because it then that's like the equal footing, I guess I kind of mean when I say like, um, poetics of play requires a certain level of respect and vulnerability and intimacy with your reader. You know, I'm thinking of like Jack Spicer's poetry is magic workshop and how sort of like batshit his application (laughs) was for that. But like the, the, the way you can let go and enter those kinds of head spaces, I don't know, is something that when you're in a program like this, you maybe lose sense of that. That's why you're doing it. That that's the, that's the initial joy that you got from it. You know, it's partly making sense of your world. It's partly constructing your idea of yourself, um, your voice, your perspective. Um, but it is also, I think, a way of cultivating an outlook in which you get to enjoy your thoughts more. You know, we're like stuck with, I, we're stuck with our brains our whole life. Um, and I don't know anyone who's excited about that. <laughs> and so trying to learn ways that you can playfully engage your experience. I don't know. I'm still, I'm, like I said, I'm still working on articulating it all. And this course has helped me get closer to why I value playfulness so much. Um, why I think it's central to my own poetics, not just as a poet, but as like a as a publisher, as a person who wants to create space in the publishing world for people. Um, and I think that's part of it. So not the most elegant explanation, but <laughs> I'm getting closer. <laughs> no, but that's great. It's, it's really interesting to like hear your thoughts and like how, you know, you are still trying to like piece together, like what it means. And I think that that's an exciting place to be. And it, you shouldn't be forcing a definition on it, right? It should be like a fluid process in which like, while teaching the course, you're still figuring it out. I love taking classes like that where the professor or teacher is like working through the subject with the students. I find that much more thrilling than like yeah. a teacher just throwing infor- a definition or information at me. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit about your MFA experience. The MFA program at the University of Massachusetts Amherst is a three-year program with tracks in poetry and prose. You told me that having a ton of interest but no formal training or study prior to entering the MFA set you up to get the most out of the experience and hit the ground running. How so? Well, I think um, I knew that I had a lot of gaps in my education, Um, a lot of things that I didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I felt really humbled um, prior to the MFA, and which is like so excited to finally get some exposure to learning. Um, you know, I hadn't read the modernists prior to my MFA, you know, I could hardly tell you what the new Americans was. Um, I came to poetry pretty late post undergrad, didn't really explore poetry in an undergrad setting. And so to be able to sort of make up for that lack of education now, um, I was just really excited about So I've been trying to get the most out of it in that regard. And then I think, too, my first book came out right before I started the program. And having having my first big sort of publishing experience over with has allowed me to focus just on the education, just on the poems themselves, individual poems. Um, You know, where I'm entering my third year and I'm getting sort of anxious about having to, like, cobble together another manuscript because I've enjoyed so much the poem to poem experience. 
and thinking like, oh, this week I remember reading these poets and that helped me think about this, you know, aspect of craft that I was really focusing on. Um, so it's a bit of a snap back to like what the sort of expectation is of the poet in this world. Um, but yeah, I've been making the most of having all this free time too, I, I suppose. And, um, you know, like we talked about earlier, I've, I've got some teaching experience. So there, there wasn't a learning curve there. So you told me like coming into the program, you already had a sense of what you needed to work on and what you needed to read to get better at your craft. How did, how did you feel that that meshed with the formal structure of the MFA? I mean, I can imagine there could be a scenario in which your ideas of what you needed to work on weren't the same as what the professors yeah. or your peers thought you needed to work on. So have you felt like the program has met you where you are in your journey? I think I've been pretty lucky because a lot of the most impactful experiences that I've had in workshop settings here has been a, a feeling of something getting unlocked for me. Like I remember the first time I met with um, Peter Gizzi, who's my thesis advisor here, one-on-one. And, you know, he'd assigned me a book the previous week that I just didn't understand at all. And I told him as much. <laughs> and, you know, he's really good at meeting you where you're at in that way. And I was just like, I don't, I didn't fucking get this. <laughs> <laughs> and he, you know, without even needing to like pull his copy off the shelf was like, okay, turn to this page and start reading out loud. And we read it out loud together. And just sort of word by word, I felt like it started to make sense hearing him read it, um, hearing what he said about it, and then being able to then bring that into my poem for the next week. And, you know, that was just, that was just Peter, one of my professors here. The same thing happens to me all the time with the other students in the workshop. You know, we're all so different in terms of um, aesthetics and backgrounds and, ways of reading poems and the kinds of feedback that we give and to have eight people with different aesthetics and interests and backgrounds reading your work is it's just, I feel so spoiled, (laughs) you know, because I've learned so many different ways to read, how to read poems and then how to read my own poems and revise my own poems. I guess I, I had, I knew that I had a lot of reading I had to do prior to the MFA, because I hadn't read a lot of the canon. Most of my experience with poetry has been contemporary writers. And I knew that I was sort of hitting a wall and getting bored with my own poems. But with the latter, I didn't really know why. And so having um, just exposure to all these different points of view on poetry has been really enriching. I feel like it's just so endless now. I could just keep going and going. All right. Well, so I've also heard that there's been quite a bit of turnover in the program recently with some professors coming and going. I want to talk about this a little bit because I think it's important for listeners to know that this is a possibility, right? This is always a possibility in these programs. Sometimes the professor you go to a program to study with gets a new job or goes on sabbatical and you don't get the time to study with them that you had hoped for originally. So having gone through this kind of turnover while you're in the program, do you have any advice for listeners who could find themselves in a similar situation in their MFA program? Yeah. um, My advice would be to turn to your cohort. Um, You know, I I started my MFA during the pandemic when everything was still virtual, pre-vaccine. You know, that 
experience plus the sort of the turnover that's happened at my program in particular has really sort of forced the poets who are here now to sort of band together. And um, we've, we've come up with ways to make sure that we're all getting what we want out of this experience, whether it's independent study reading groups that we do together, or um, some of the people in my cohort have created like a monthly graduate student reading series, whether it's um, spending extra time with people after workshop to edit things, or, you know, some of us have been able to offer other people in the program, um, you know, internship experiences, because it wasn't just um, turnover, but we also lost Jubilat our first year. And I really loved that journal and was so excited to work on it. So that was sad. But I, I mean, I get it. I, I, I understand. Um, but it, it was sad. And so there have been some other, you know, people in the program who work on small presses or indie journals who have tried to figure out ways to open up opportunities for one another. And I feel a really strong sense of community here because of that among the students. Um, I feel like we, we look out for each other, at least, I mean, I can't speak for the students in other years or really the students on the pro side in my year, but the poets here um, are really uh, close. Yeah. I mean, and that's another thing that's like not totally in your control, right? You don't know who's going to be in your cohort and how you all are going to get along. But for the most part, people are doing these programs for similar reasons, right? So there is that common ground um, that you can, you know, work with. If things aren't going exactly according to plan in the program, you have these people who all want similar things. Um, I want to talk a bit about some of the opportunities that are built into the program you went to. It sounds like there are various opportunities to teach in the program, including within the English department and in something called the writing program, which is independent from the MFA, as well as at the Juniper Institute for Young Writers. What can you tell us about those various opportunities? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The writing program is within the English department and it is essentially um, college comp. Um, it's what most first years get assigned to teach if they get a, a teaching position and you can keep renewing it year after year if you want. And that's how you get your funding. And then starting your, you know, going into your second year, you can start applying to teach in the MFA. There's courses, whether it's um, like a creative seminar or workshop or the Living Writers course, which is also a reading series here. Um, And you can start doing that in your second year and then into your third as well. And the Juniper Institute is a summer and winter camp for young writers, so teenagers. And there you have the opportunity to give craft talks, to run writing labs, which are like miniature workshops, to do readings, to listen to readings, to do intensive one-on-one programs with certain students who are ready to sort of tidy up a, a submission packet or wanting to take their craft to really the next level. So that's, that's been, that's been a joy because I love teaching. Um, and that has been one of my favorite parts about this program is how flexible the curriculum is in any of the above that I just mentioned. And you can kind of design it to be what you want and then teach what you're interested in and, you know, 
get to spend time with other young people who are interested in writing. I also wanted to ask about funding because it isn't entirely clear from the website if UMass Amherst is a fully funded program. It says, as of fall 2020, all full-time candidates are funded at a level sufficient to bring a waiver of tuition and most fees. That's just, just like a little bit <laughs> confusing statement. Um, so like, I just wanted to check with you, are all the students in the program fully funded, meaning like tuition waiver and a stipend? I don't know. As far as I know, everyone is funded, whether it's because they have a teaching position or a fellowship. I don't think I know anyone who doesn't have funding, though I'm, I'm, I'm sure that person exists. Maybe there's someone in state who doesn't want to teach and will just, right, right. you know, take out a loan or something. Um, but um, it is full funding. Um, it's livable. There are some student fees that they're out of the MFA's control. It's more university admin. But we have a really strong union. Yeah, they're really active. They're trying to get rid of those fees. Yeah, to my to my knowledge, it's like if you if you want the funding, you can get it. And you mentioned that Jubilat, the journal that was being published there at UMass Amherst, is no longer being published. Are there other publishing opportunities through the program? Yeah, there's um, in the fall, you can read for the Juniper Prize, which is an annual prize, um, one for poetry and one for prose. Or actually, there might be one for fiction and then also nonfiction. I'm not sure how the prose side works. Um, but you can you can read for it you know, manuscript submissions. Peach Mag is here and we offer like internship opportunities. There are other like indie journals that are in the area. Western Massachusetts is such a rich area for um, poetry and public publishing. There's also a journal called Paper Bark that is through the MFA. Um, I'm actually, I'm not totally sure, so don't quote me on this, but one of the professors runs it, um, and MFA students can sign up for it. Um, how it's funded, I'm not sure, so I don't want to say it's through the MFA, but it could be. Um, but it's a literary journal. Well, before we go, I want to give you the last word and the question that I've been asking people in season three. Maybe we've kind of touched on a little bit already, but I'm going to ask you anyway. What is one way in which the MFA experience has been different, for better or for worse, from your expectations when applying? I think I had an idea of MFAs that workshop and other situations and settings would be really difficult or competitive or negative in some kind of way, that it would be something like you were almost like putting the ringer over. I just, you know, I'm on Twitter. I read the horror stories. (laughs) Um, but I, I, I'm, I've pretty much loved, um, everyone I've worked with here, like my, the, the poets that I work with in the program, like there really isn't that sense of competition. I I do really feel like a, a sense of support and encouragement and enthusiasm for and with one another that is exciting. And that sort of surprised me and, um, subverted my expectations of what the what an MFA program would feel like be like um so that that's been really nice 
Yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> fucking love people. when people are nice. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It goes so right. hard for that shit. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, I think we can agree that uh, our hope for anyone listening applying to MFA programs, if you get in, you get into whatever program you get into. I hope that the cohort is supportive and kind. The vast majority of people that I talk to on this show say that that's the situation that they've had. They That's the experience they've had that it, in general, the, um, their cohorts tend to be really kind and supportive. I'm sh- sure that's not the case with everyone, but fingers crossed. Yeah. Anyone <laughs> listening, if you get into a program, that'll be your experience. Cause it is a really nice feeling to get into one of these communities and feel like it's a safe space that you can play with your work and you can turn it in. You don't have to be nervous what people are going to think or that there's going to be competition or if things don't go totally according to plan in the program, it's nice to have kind friends to fall back on and to, you know, like you said, band together with and create the experience you want to have. Yeah, absolutely. Shout out to the poets at the MFA. (laughs) Wonderful people. And fucking amazing poets (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much for stopping by and chatting with me i really appreciate it's been really fun talking to you thank you so much for having me